My name is Elise Shaw, and I am a PGY3 pediatrics resident at Indiana University. We're here today with Dr. Eric Ebenroth, professor of pediatrics in the Department of Cardiology. Thanks for being here, Dr. Ebenroth. My pleasure. Today, we're going to talk about murmurs as well as acyanotic heart disease. Cardiology itself is approximately 3% of the questions on AVP board content specs, and we're going to cover some of those topics today. So Dr. Ebenroth, let's start out with the basics, murmurs and pediatrics. Lots of kids that we see have murmurs in the outpatient setting. Just how common are murmurs in kids? Murmurs are incredibly common. If you listen to enough children enough times in their life, you will probably hear a murmur at some point during one of your checkups in 85 or 90% of kids at some point. The vast majority of those murmurs are going to be innocent or functional murmurs and of no consequence. So it's really important for the generalist out there to understand sort of the qualities and characteristics that make murmurs benign and what sorts of things to be looking for um, in order to determine whether there's something that needs to be investigated further. So what are some of the characteristics that make murmurs benign? Murmurs that are benign tend to come and go. So in children, as I mentioned, uh, some days you'll listen to them and they may have a murmur that seems quite loud. Uh, At other times you may listen to them and the murmur may not be audible at all. Murmurs that come and go like that tend to be benign. A VSD or an aortic stenosis that's causing a a turbulent flow is not going to come and go uh, as a child grows. Um, And so those would be more consistent with the innocent murmurs. Generally speaking, innocent murmurs tend to be softer and less harsh than some of the more uh, pathologic murmurs. Uh, Typically when you're grading murmurs in intensity, innocent murmurs are going to be in the one, two, and three out of six range. Once you get to the four, five, or six level, when you can feel a thrill with that murmur, that is abnormal flow. That is not a normal murmur, and that child is going to need to be investigated more, uh, more thoroughly. Innocent murmurs also should be associated with otherwise normal, healthy kids. Uh, there should not be anything else in your history or your physical exam to suggest underlying cardiac pathology. They shouldn't have any cardiac symptoms. They shouldn't have any difficulties keeping up with their peers. They shouldn't have any respiratory issues, growth issues. All the things that you would associate with uh, abnormal cardiac function should be absent from your history and physical exam. So which of these patients deserves an echo, or how do we decide who to echo? Uh, Generally speaking, I don't echo most of my innocent murmurs. So when I see kids in clinic, I'm pretty comfortable with my diagnosis, and I probably echo 5% of those kids if I'm pretty comfortable with the innocent murmur. A lot of that really depends on your level of comfort and your level of uh, experience and what you have available in your local area. Certainly, no insurance company is going to fault you for getting an echo on a child that has a murmur. But I think it's probably overuse of the test. I think uh, when you're talking about a test that costs several thousand dollars to perform, doing those sort of willy-nilly on everybody that comes in with a murmur is going to be pretty expensive. We mentioned earlier, 85 or 90% of kids has a murmur. If you're going to echo every child in your practice, the insurance companies aren't going to be real happy with you. So I would reserve murmur, or reserve echoes rather, for the murmurs that really seem unusual, that seem harsher than you would expect, or that have unusual characteristics that you don't expect of a typical innocent murmur, or in a child that has other symptoms or signs that makes you concerned that this could possibly represent pathologic disease. Generally speaking, I think if you have a specialist available, if you have a cardiologist in your area that can see patients, if you're not comfortable making the diagnosis of that innocent murmur by yourself, it's probably cheaper in the long run, and probably better for the families just to refer them. 
a visit with me costs a couple hundred bucks versus a couple thousand, and I'm probably not going to echo that kid if they have an innocent murmur. If they do have a pathologic murmur, I can get the echo right then and there, and I can explain what's going on to the family and reassure them or lead them down the path toward whatever therapy is necessary. Okay, so let's talk about the natural history of some of the diseases or lesions that cause some of these benign murmurs and some that cause some that are more concerning. We'll start with the PDA. Can you briefly review for us the role of the PDA or the patent ductus arteriosus in fetal circulation? Sure. So the ductus arteriosus is a an arterial communication between the aorta and the pulmonary artery that's present in fetal life. Its purpose is to allow blood to bypass the lungs, so to shunt away from the lungs and be shunted toward the systemic circulation before the baby's born. And the reason this is important is because the babies aren't breathing. So sending a lot of blood to the lungs for aeration is not going to make any difference, or for oxygenation rather, is not going to, is not going to really be beneficial. Uh, we need to get that blood to the placenta where the oxygen exchange can take place. And so that's what this, the purpose of the PDA is, to allow that shunting of blood to the placenta. Obviously, once we're born, we don't longer have a placenta attached to us, and we need to start breathing. And so at that point, the ductus will close, allowing that blood to stay in the lungs where oxygenation can take place. Uh, in certain circumstances, uh, the ductus arteriosus remains open after fetal life, and we call that a patent ductus arteriosus because it has remained patent after it was supposed to. Generally, kids will tolerate PDAs pretty well. So a normal-term baby that doesn't have any other uh, risk factors or complications will probably do pretty well with a PDA if it's small to moderate in size. Larger PDAs may cause overcirculation, uh, heart failure type symptoms in some children. So as you can imagine, once we're born and the pulmonary vascular resistance drops, if that PDA doesn't close, then instead of having right to left shunting like that baby did in the fetal life, suddenly now that blood will go left to right and you'll overcirculate or send extra blood into the lungs which can cause overcirculation, heart failure type symptoms in some children. They may, uh, smaller children may have difficulties with their breathing, with feedings. They may have difficulties with growth, tachypnea. Uh, those sorts of symptoms can occur, in which case you would need to intervene or take uh, some uh, course of action to, to remedy that situation and get rid of the ductus. So what are some physical exam findings associated with PDAs and any buzzwords from testing to kind of cue us on to that the testers are looking for PDA? If you have any knowledge of those, that would be great. Sure. So uh, on physical examination, when you're doing your cardiac exam, uh, you will hear a murmur with a clinically significant PDA uh, typically. In a child that has normal pulmonary vascular resistance, you should have a continuous murmur. Uh, these murmurs are often described as machinery-like. They like to use that, that descriptor because of the sort of systolic and diastolic nature of the murmur that sounds sort of like a piston. So you get this machinery-like quality to the continuous murmur. In addition, because of the diastolic runoff into the pulmonary circuit, uh, you tend to have wider pulse pressure on your blood pressure, which will make the pulses feel bounding. So kids with PDAs tend to have bounding pulses with these machinery-like continuous murmurs. Is there a particular spot where we should be listening for that murmur, or is it all over? Generally speaking, you'll hear that probably best along the left upper sternal border. You may hear it also on the left side of the back by the scapula, where the, the ductus sort of sits in, in usual cases. And what's the management for a PDA? Who needs to have their PDA closed, or who can watch and wait? Sure. Generally speaking, if the child is having symptoms from a large ductus, if they're having growth issues, overcirculation, heart failure type symptoms, then that child should have that ductus taken care of. Kids that have smaller ductuses, small to moderate lesions, becomes a little more challenging in terms of what to do. Prior to 2007, 
when the recommendations and guidelines for SB prophylaxis were to prophylax all ductuses because of the risk for endocarditis, it was a pretty cut and dry answer. If you have a ductus, you take care of it. We got away from having to do surgery on the vast majority of these, and so we can close most of these in the cath lab with a minimal, minimally invasive outpatient procedure. So closing them is pretty easy, and it's not a problem to take care of them. Larger ones certainly should be. Smaller ones, I think you have some options. You can watch them for a while, see what happens, and as long as the kids are doing well, I don't think you're in a big rush to close them. But certainly if they stay open long-term, you're probably going to want to get them to the cath lab and get them closed at some point. Is there a certain age by which you would expect it to close? Generally speaking, I would expect the ductus to be closed by the time the kids are several days old in the normal situation. Uh, If they persist beyond that, then it's kind of hit or miss in terms of whether it's going to close or not. I have certainly had patients of my own that I've followed for a while, and after a year or so, these small ductuses have closed. But that's kind of hit or miss in terms of the patients. If it hasn't closed in that first month, it's probably not going to close. All right, let's move on to our next lesion, ASDs or atrial septal defects. What are some of the natural history involved with ASDs? Well, again, ASDs in general are present in all babies initially. So we talked about the fetal circulation and the blood having to bypass the lungs and go off to the placenta. The PDA is one of those means of, of getting the blood to the placenta. The other is a communication between the atrial septa, right? I'm sorry, communication between the atria and the atrial septum. And so all fetuses will have what's called a foramenal valley, which is a small communication between the atria that allows blood to bypass from the right atrium into the left atrium and be sent off to the placenta for oxygenation. Um, typically, there's a flap of tissue um, that will close this hole after birth. When the, when the pressure changes occur in the lungs and the, the volume changes occur, um, this will be closed up. In a large percentage of, of children, if you echo them in the first months of life, you will still see some blood shunting across the patent foramenal valley, and this can be normal. As a matter of fact, that patent foramenal valley doesn't close in about a third of normal adults. And so if you were to perform autopsies on 100 healthy 30-year-olds, you could still push a probe across that foramenal valley in about a third of them. And so that's of no consequence, and nothing really needs to be done about that. In the case where that hole is larger than that small foramenal valley, uh, when it starts becoming larger, we call it a secundomatrial septal defect at that point. And now symptoms and clinical findings will vary based on the size of that defect. As a general rule, uh, small to moderate ASDs are probably not going to cause significant symptoms. Even in fairly large uh, ASDs, Murmurs are not associated with the flow or the turbulent flow across the atrial septum, but if you have enough blood flow crossing from left to right across that septum, that blood has to go somewhere. And when it passes across the pulmonary valve on its way out to the lungs, you will get some turbulence across the pulmonary valve of a relative pulmonary valve stenosis as that blood is forced across that normal-sized valve. And so typically with children with moderate to large ASDs, you'll get a soft pulmonary stenosis sounding murmur. So that'll be a murmur at the upper left sternal border. Uh, It's going to be soft, typically grades one to three in intensity. uh, And you'll hear that in the upper left sternal border with perhaps radiation to both sides of the back, which sounds similar to mild pulmonary stenosis. Likewise, if you've got a fair amount of shunt across the atrial septum, because it takes a while for it to get across the pulmonary valve, it does tend to slow the closure of the pulmonary valve. And so quite frequently, you'll get a persistently split second heart sound. So rather than getting the normal respiratory variation where it splits with inspiration, your second heart sound will be split continually throughout the respiration. So you get a persistently split second heart sound with a soft 
ejection quality murmur in the upper left sternal border, and that can, is, is usually your clue that you're dealing with an atrial septal defect of decent size. So there's our buzzword, a fixed split S2. So how are ASD slash PFOs managed? Again, if the kids are doing clinically well, you have time to watch them and, and sort of observe. Generally, kids with larger defects will start to develop some problems as they get older into the first couple of years or so. Um, the first thing you'll start noticing on echo is dilation of the right-sided heart chambers. As that blood's being forced across there, the right side of the heart will dilate to accommodate the blood volume. If you leave that unchecked over time, eventually, and this may take decades, but eventually they will develop worsening heart function and even potentially development of pulmonary hypertension uh, to protect the lungs from all that increased volume. With ASDs, that tends to take a lot longer than with other lesions like VSDs, for instance, but will eventually happen if you leave these large defects unchecked uh, over time. Symptom-wise, most young kids are going to be without symptoms from an ASD. A lot of times they're picked up incidentally by the murmur or by an echo that was done incidentally for something else. Um, if they do develop symptoms, they're probably older and they're already starting to have some of those other problems we talked about in terms of dilated heart chambers and potentially over-circulation into the lungs uh, and would be things like increasing fatigability, inability to keep up with their peers, um, some dyspnea with mild activities, those sorts of things. So we talked about ASDs and their position as the remnant of the foramen ovale. What about VSDs? How are those formed? Sure. So VSDs are always going to be abnormal. There's never supposed to be a persistent hole in the ventricular septum. Embryologically, when the heart is forming and the heart tube folds on itself and twists, you then develop the ventricular septum from several mechanisms, muscular tissue coming up from the bottom and some uh, membranous tissue coming up from, or coming down from the endocardial cushion that all comes together to form uh, the ventricular septum. Any problem in any of those areas of formation can lead to defects or holes in the various areas of the ventricular septum. And so some sort of embryological abnormality or deficit leads to VSDs. What sort of physical exam findings are associated with VSDs? VSDs in general will have fairly classic sounding murmurs. If you have a defect that's at least sort of small to large in size, you can develop a holosystolic systolic murmur. So these are not the typical sort of crescendo-decrescendo ejection murmurs that we hear commonly associated with a lot of innocent murmurs and some of the valvar stenoses. This is a holosystolic murmur that typically starts with the first heart sound and continues with a sort of steady pitch through the entire systole and sort of ends at the second heart sound, often muffling the second heart sound. With very small defects, so if you have a very small muscular defect, for instance, sometimes those um, will be so small that they will close mid-systole. As the heart contract, they'll close. Those won't give you holosystolic murmurs because you don't have flow throughout systole. So those will sound more like little truncated early systolic murmurs. So small muscular defects might give you more of a kind of a sound as opposed to the holosystolic sound you get with a larger defect. Let's talk about the management of VSDs. Are there any lesions that are more or less likely to close on their own? And if not, by what age should the lesions be closed? The vast majority of the VSDs that we see are going to be in an area called the perimembranous region, which is a, an area just above the muscular portion in a thin area below the, uh, the AV valves, uh, any, uh, I'm sorry, below the semilunar valves. And then a lot of them we'll, we'll find in the muscular region. Many of these defects will close up on their own. The muscular defects will typically close as muscle fibers grow into those holes as the heart grows and seal them off. In that perimembranous region, uh, they can sometimes 
cause some suction of the tricuspid valve leaflets into the defect, closing off the defect as well. And there's enough redundancy to that tissue that it doesn't cause any problems with the tricuspid valve. So those types of defects will often close. The smaller the defect, obviously, the more likely it is to close. Smaller defects are going to close more frequently than large defects. Moderate defects are sort of hit or miss, and you're never quite sure. And so I will typically follow those kids, if they're asymptomatic and not having any problems from their, from their VSDs, for several years before I decide to do anything. As a general rule, I tell my families, if the defect hasn't gone away completely, if it hasn't closed completely by the time that kid is five or six, so starting kindergarten, for instance, it's probably not going to get much smaller after that. Again, I've had some anecdotal cases where I've had teenagers that I've been following for a while that suddenly the VSD closes, but generally speaking, by kindergarten, by five or six, whatever they're left with is what they're left with. And if it's a small defect, I don't necessarily do anything about it. I know lots of adult patients that have small VSDs and are perfectly normal and have no uh, difficulties whatsoever. Uh, if, however, I've got a kid who's two, three years old that I've been following, they've got a moderate to large size defect, I haven't been seeing much change in it over time, and or they're developing some symptoms from the VSD, at that point I'm probably going to think about sending that kid off to surgery and getting it fixed. And let's talk about our final acyanotic lesion of today, bicuspid aortic mm -hmm. valves. Just how common are bicuspid aortic valves estimated to be in the population? Bicuspid aortic valves are incredibly common. Probably a little less than 1% of the population has a bicuspid aortic valve, and probably the vast majority of those don't even realize it. Uh, most of these are asymptomatic. Uh, they're running around without care in the world and not even realizing they've got something wrong with them. This is sort of the thing that, you know, great uncle Joe, when he had his valve replacement at 75, he was probably born with a bicuspid aortic valve and six or seven decades worth of wear and tear and calcification finally led to enough dysfunction of that valve that he ends up needing some work on it. So they're pretty common. Uh, in our population, when we diagnose them in children, it's usually because they not only have just the bicuspid valve, but they have some other aspect. It's either stenotic or regurgitant or a combination of those two things that also leads to a murmur that people can hear that then triggers off an evaluation and uh, we make the diagnosis. Are there any other lesions in the left ventricular outflow tract that are associated with bicuspid aortic valves, like coarctation or anything along those lines? Sure. When we see kids with bicuspid aortic valves and aortic stenosis, there is certainly a higher incidence of seeing coarctations in those patients, or, or probably the reverse is even more true. If you see coarctation, there's a much higher incidence that the child will actually have bicuspid aortic valve in associated with the coarctation. So let's say we get an echo on a patient for another reason and we find a bicuspid aortic valve. Is there any management course that we need to take now or is it just something to watch? It really depends if there's anything associated with the bicuspid valve or not. So if you find an isolated bicuspid aortic valve, there's no aortic stenosis, there's no aortic insufficiency, and there's no dilation of the aortic root, which is something that's also commonly associated with bicuspid valves, then that's a kid you can probably watch over time and just see how he does. In my practice, I'll get echoes on those kids every couple of years or so and just follow them clinically and, and see how they do to make sure they don't develop those other sorts of things. If there's already aortic stenosis, insufficiency, or a dilated root, then that's a kid that probably needs to be referred to cardiology so they can follow that child and make sure if any, interven inter any intervention is necessary, it can be managed at the appropriate time. We mentioned old Uncle Joe and his incidentally found bicuspid aortic valve. For patients who are diagnosed with a bicuspid aortic valve at a younger age, are there any future implications that, that they or their primary care doctor or cardiologist in the adult world would need to know? Well, I think they need to keep an eye on it over time to make sure they're not going to develop any problems. But in the short term, certainly in the pediatric age range, if they, are, if they have an isolated bicuspid valve without stenosis, without regurgitation, without symptoms, 
I don't necessarily put any restrictions or limitations on those kids. I let them do pretty much whatever the heck they want. If they start developing insufficiency or stenosis or dilation of the root, then those kids are going to be probably restricted in terms of their ability to perform strenuous isometric activities as those sorts of weight lifting activities can hasten the progression of those of those valves. All right, that brings us to the end of our discussion of murmurs and acyanotic heart disease. I want to thank Dr. Eben Roth for his time and have a great day. Okay, listeners, now we are going to play a game where I play a sound and at home you're going to guess what it is and then I will tell you the answer after. Here we go. Did you catch it? What if I told you, you hear this at the left upper sternal border, and you also have some increased right-sided femoral and radial pulses? Let's listen one more time. The answer was a PDA. Notice the machine-like quality of the murmur. PDA. All right, the next sound you listen to, you hear in the lower left sternal border around the fourth intercostal space. This is a ventricular septal defect murmur. Notice the holosystolic nature, and it can be best heard at the lower sternal border border on the left. Okay, last one. This one you hear at the upper left sternal border. The patient has normal pulses. That was an atrial septal defect, an ASD. Notice the fixed split S2. Let's listen again. Okay, that's it for acyanotic heart disease. Join us next time for cyanotic heart disease.